Welcome to What's Next, Cornet Global's podcast that puts members on the microphone with thought-provoking, profession-shaping conversations and commentary. Welcome everyone to this webinar by Cornet Global and Colliers on how talent and location will define the future. My name is Sonali Tare, Vice President of Strategic Content with Cornet Global, and I'm the host of this webinar along with my colleague Kendra and Grace Maitland of Colliers. We will discuss the intersection of location and workplace. This session will include real-time insights through live polling and insightful discussions that will address questions that are at the top of mind for many corporate real estate leaders. With that, I'd like to introduce our moderator today, Michelle Needles. Michelle is the Head of Enterprise Client Solutions, Executive Vice President, Occupier Services Americas for Colliers. In addition to Michelle, we will hear from some very experienced and esteemed speakers. And a big thank you to all of them for being here to share the insights. And with that, I'd like to hand things over to Michelle to kick off our discussion. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you, Sonali. Uh, we're really excited to have everyone join us today. Um, as Sonali mentioned, I'm Michelle Needles, head of our Enterprise Client Solutions team for the Americas here at Colliers, as well as serving as one of our executive champions for the Colliers Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion platform. I'm going to hand this over to my colleagues, if we could advance to the next slide. Brett? Excellent. Brett Swingo, I lead our workforce analytics and location strategy consulting service here in the Americas. Thanks, Brett. Chris Lockie, Global Head of Client Experience for our Occupier Services Platform. Thanks, Chris. Jan Yap Bogart, Head of Workplace Advisory across Europe, Middle East, and Africa. And I'm Keith Persky. I lead Workplace Advisory for the Americas. Excellent. Thank you, team. Uh, we do have a number of topics that were shared in the invitation uh, that we're going to be covering today. With that, we're going to start uh, right out of the gate with poll one, um, speaking to to the topic of what will attract people to the office. And I'm going to hand this over to Keith Persky and Yanya Obar. Thanks, Michelle. And so this topic really is one of the main questions that we're getting all the time these days, which is what how are we going to attract people back off of their sofas, back to the back to the office. And, and in our studies, in our work, we're seeing that companies are providing things like free lunches or free, free food, or they're sponsoring events, or they're having musicians come in. You know, Google is providing electric scooters and Qualcomm is having take a break Tuesdays where they have pop-up snack bars. So there's these ideas about not mandating people to come back into the office, but more about attracting people there because the office offers what people need and want. And so what we're doing here is the real value of this, this conversation together is really to understand what you are seeing out there. What are the things that are happening that are being seen to be useful for bringing people back to the office? Yanyab, do you have any examples from Europe? Yeah, I think it's very similar as the things that, that you just mentioned. So we see a lot of organizations focusing on events or organizing social events. Other interesting examples and organizations that we're working with who has the leadership very visible in offices, in the office on certain days in order to enable younger generations and younger people to connect with them. And I think it also links to sort of having the base facilities in order in the office so related to food, but also high quality technology and have sort of a seamless experience in, uh, in the office. As we've been working with companies recently, we found that there was a medical insurance company we're working with that offers free lunches and different food trucks every day. So they're they're really thinking about food. I mean, we, we're finding that, that food is the big attractor in many cases. Microsoft uh, provided free food early on. They're not quite continuing that just yet, but really that idea about the social aspects of being in the office supported by good food and coffee seems to be a, a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. One piece I'd add there, Keith, I work out of an industrious a lot when I'm in Tampa 
And you could just see from, they take away the breakfast at 10 o'clock and at nine 55, half of the people that come in in the first three hours that I'm there come through the door in that five minute segment. So there certainly is an attractive factor to the, to the food and beverage. Yeah. We've had a number of folks provide ideas. So this idea about socializing events and celebrations, I think completely tracks with our experience that what people are missing the most about the office is each other and being able to see each other and to interact in a, in, in social situations, not just professional. So I, Completely agree that that number one is there. Number two, uh, deep collaboration that leads to innovation. The idea that building innovative, well, sorry, number two is curated experiences. Sorry about that. Uh, such as town halls, affinity groups. So the idea is it's not just the space that brings people back or the amenities. It's also the events. How do you create events that draw people back to the office? And then number three is this idea about deep collaboration. It's difficult to do very innovative things when you're separated by screens and using Zoom, but being in a room together with a lot of whiteboards does lead to high innovation. Could I ask what, what the feedback was on the other? It was 2% on other. I'd be interested because I think some of the things you alluded to were, you know, technology, but um, be- <laughs> It doesn't show on here what uh, other people's comments made. That, that's fair. First of all, do you have a, a thought on the other? Did you click other? I didn't, actually. I okay. haven't stuck all to right. the poll. But but I do think, you know, technology is a big one. Um, too. You know, we've... You know, we do hear from from people that, you know, they, they adjusted their internet connection to ensure that it was a lot more stable when they were working from home. Um, and there has been feedback. It's, it's obviously easier to connect in your office, especially when there are protocols um, around that, depending on the- Very good. Is there anybody else who clicked the other that would like to expand on their thoughts? So good. I, I think that, um, I think we've worked through this one. Yanyap, I'm going to pass it over to you to do question number two. Yes, great. Thanks, Keith. Um, so the question, uh, second question where we would like to focus um, on is more about equality and creating an equal experience for people who are working from the office and people who are working remotely. So how can we make sure that the experience is, is similar and that we can maintain culture in organizations also when people, when some people or some roles are not, uh, are not physically present in the office? And I think there are sort of two levels or two layers to that. So on one hand, it focuses on if you have a team that works intensively together, it could be that not everyone is in on the same day, of course, although you might organize team days, but on certain days, not everyone might be in. So how do you create high quality collaboration in an inclusive way when half of the team is in the office and half of the team is outside of the office, but also on another scale when certain and teams work more remotely and other teams not. So those teams who work more remotely, how do we make sure that they are part of the organization, that they are part of the uh, of the culture, have an equal experience as people who, who are present in the office? I think there are a lot of tests and pilots going on at the moment around what kind of solutions can be implemented. We see them in a lot of the clients that we work with on three levels. So from a technology perspective, there are potentially things that can be done. From a workplace perspective, there are potentially things that can be done by having different types of setup. But also from a behavioral perspective, of course, there might be things that uh, that can be done i think what is remarkable but that most of the things that we see on the screen relate to like more the behavioral side of things and protocols so meeting etiquette assign a person to serve a moderator to ensure both in office and virtual people have opportunities to talk where needed i think that's something that we see in a lot of organizations trialing and testing and testing with that open laptop term cameron rules of the road proper zoom protocols so a lot of the things are related to behaviors and having the right agreements in order to have that sort of equal and inclusive inclusive experience i think also from a technology perspective there are a lot of new developments coming on the market we're working with a lot of technology companies also 
also looking to mixed reality and even holograms, for example. I think it's still early days and often still a little bit gimmicky, maybe. But I think there are a lot of, of interesting technologies coming on the market, trying to sort of replicate the experience of being in person together while not being together uh, in person. And also from a workplace perspective, more from a physical place perspective, we see a lot of new setups and a lot of new furniture setups being tested at the moment. Now, one example is we're, doing, we're developing a lab space for a large financial organization at the moment, where we're rotating different teams through the space and measure all kinds of different technologies, different workplace solutions, different furniture setups to see what works and what doesn't. Some of the things that we're testing are directly related to making hybrid meetings more inclusive. And one example is a more circular setup with having one person popping up on one screen uh, instead of having everyone on one screen, trying to sort of make it, make, it, make it more inclusive and have equal participation in these meetings. But I think the behavioral side of things, testing different behaviors, I think that, it, that, is, that is a really critical thing and having technology in the workplace more as a facilitator and enabler for them. Are there any things, Keith, uh, that you are seeing in, in the clients that you work with or any best practices that you're already collecting? Yeah, I think that, that I double down on this new team norms idea, which is how do we interact with each other when we're separate and how do we work together when we're together? And that we're having conversations that we've never had to have before, which is... You know, so if there's a pre-meeting conversation in the hallway, how do the people who are not in the building participate in that? Well, maybe you don't have that meeting or you pull that meeting into the room or you take notes about the meeting, and which is all a little bit clunky, but we have to really think through how do we make sure that those extra things that happened in and around meetings when we were physically together still can happen, but that the people who are not in the room are able to participate in some way. So it, it's uh, it's agreements and it's sometimes saying, you know, we're not going to do that. You know, we're not going to have a, an after meeting uh, in the hallway. We're going to, you know, reserve that for the next meeting or we're going to. So it really is having some discipline around it and, and coming to agreements about it. And it's evolving, right? It's still emerging exactly how we're going to do this. But the team norms conversation, I think, is one of the number one things we're working with clients now around this topic. Yeah. I think the interesting thing is there is no answer yet around the globe. We're currently all returning. I think a lot of different things are being tested. I think the next period will be really, really interesting to sort of identify uh, the elements that work and identify the best practices. So I think sharing that is really, uh, yeah, really, really important. We have a, a comment in chat too. I wasn't sure if you saw that. I just didn't want to bring attention to that. Okay. Sorry, that's my job, huh? Which is, uh, <laughs> it says, let's see, uh, level set expectations to ensure virtual people feel they have equitable experience. Uh, so I think that's really about, again, having agreements about how you're going to interact from the behavior perspective. And Renee, if I've messed that up, I'm glad to have you join in. No, you didn't mess it up. I was trying to indicate more in the micro sense. You know, I think team norms holistically are great, but there's nuances that change from day to day. And sometimes 50% of the team is virtual and sometimes it's only one person. So, you know, ensuring that everyone's aligned in each and every instance, I think is important um, in order to ensure equity. And I think just, just having the conversation creates a sensitivity around it and, an, and a recognition that this is something we have to think about. And, and again, tease us up for evolving this as it goes forward. Hey, hey Keith, I have a question for, for you and Yanyap. Are you guys seeing any, I mean, this is probably a little bit of a, I don't know, maybe this is a gray area, but some of these companies who want people back in the office, on average, are you seeing them push as hard for that equitable experience? Because I, I could see a world where they're like, hey, you know, if you don't come in the office, yeah, it's not an equitable experience because you're not physically here. I'm just curious to see if you guys have, have uh, come up against that. 
that concept. Well, I'd say that there there's very few companies who are mandating that. We did a recent survey where we said 70% of companies are not mandating when people come back, notwithstanding Elon Musk's announcement yesterday that everybody's back in the office 40 hours a week. So it's it's hard to answer the question because there isn't a mandate for people to be there. And and it needs to play itself out. Even that Elon Musk bit's going to play itself out to land where it's supposed to land. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, your question about, you know, his position was, if you want to be interactive, you're in the office. We're not going to create provisions for us to be equitable with you phoning it in, was his quote. And so I don't know where this mandate idea is going to go. I just don't think that what we're seeing in a vast majority of the folks we're talking with, that mandates are going to work, at least not right now. Yep. We see it on certain days. So we see a lot of, of organizations um, developing team days yeah. or trying to get people together on specific moments and trying to push. And the question that we just covered in the first discussion that we are trying to trigger people to come um, with having different facilities, different events, etc. Also here across Europe, we see that there are very limited organizations really mandating it. But we see uh, organizations managing it to get people together again and to get the, the entire team or multiple teams together for uh, uncertain moments. So they focus more on creating that experience for maybe one day or two days a week with everyone. Mm-hmm. Big flexibility around it. Dan, I have a question on that. I know this is pretty early, but are you seeing any initial results from that? Or, or is it a significant amount of participation when you do set up those particular days? If it's not mandated, right? Like how, how, a, how is initially uh, the results coming through? I'll jump in. We're working with a public utility right now, and they've left it to managers and their teams to decide what that is. And there's one team that says, we're in the office on Wednesdays. And the badge data completely shows that's true. There's big spikes on Wednesdays. And so it, it wasn't a mandate from the top. It was, you guys figure out how you can work best. And they, as a team, figured it out. And then they come in one day a week. And so we've seen that in a few companies. But in that one, it's just like, that's what we want. We're going to make it happen. And they're there. But they're not in five days a week, and they're not in three days a week. They're in one day a week. Yeah, we're seeing that similar here. Another interesting angle is if we look at like the generations that are coming back to the office. So we see younger people coming back to the office slightly more compared to more senior people in the business. But the reason why they often want to come back is to learn from more senior people in the business and to have the connection with them. And we see that some of the projects they were doing now, that there's large change programs going on to sort of convince the management levels to come back on certain days, to come more back to the office in order to, to also be able to exchange their knowledge with the more junior members of teams. I think it's really interesting also to link it to, to generations, sort of the drivers, why they are coming back and might be a differentiated approach needed to stimulate certain generations in a different way to come back compared to younger generations. Are you sharing any of that information with like older leadership that's Oh, yeah. I don't know. I, yeah. <laughs> is it, is it yeah. moving the needle at all? Or do you think they're like, eh, it's still, it's still a barrier to come in. <laughs> a, part, a big part of our work these days is helping senior leaders come to grips with it, how they think it through, what the evidence from their employees is telling them. And we are seeing clearly leadership teams moving in that direction toward hybrid, where at first they're like, I'm not sure, but through the course of several conversations and evidence, they start to change their position. It's 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 interesting and gratifying to see that there's movement here. Any other um, comments or questions or things you would like to add on this topic before we move on? Yanni yeah, and, and Keith, I had a question for you. You know, as we looked at the close of 2021 and there was a lot of conversation around the great resignation and, you know, part of that conversation was burnout and, you know, what people within all strata of an organization were feeling from not just working from home, but all of the associated, even mental health drag that was associated with 
what we'd been going through collectively as a global enterprise, um, you know, working through various degrees of shutdown and working virtually and having, you know, family home, et cetera. How does, you know, managing um, morale and engagement and burnout kind of come into play when we have folks that may still be working from home and those that are in the office? What are we seeing in terms of the mental health aspects of those equitable experiences? I'll start by saying that I think it's important to be, to have a rational reason for why people are coming to the office and why they're staying at home. You can't just say, we want you in the office because we said so. It has to have some rationality around. So the predictability and the rationale, I think, helps center people mentally and on what they're thinking about. It also addresses the idea that, you know, some groups, the finance group or accounts payable can probably work from home a lot, whereas quality assurance needs to be in the office more often because that's where their work is. And if you have a rational distinction about why that's true for different groups and how they work, you can start to level set and not have people feel anxious about why they're choosing to have to be in the office versus someone having to be at home. So I think evidence and a rational approach helps center people and level the playing field. But the second bit, and we've seen it, is that people miss being together socially. And I think providing ways and events and, and investment and a commitment to the value of that as a leadership team is important to people's mental health. And so we're seeing where companies are saying, look, everybody's getting together because we're going to get together. You know, we're coming to the office, we have free food, we have a party, we're not going to work. You know, those kinds of things help people in, in the way they're working. So, I mean, we're seeing some of that, if that helps. There's still there's still a challenge here. We, we've managed to take all the fun out of work when you work from home all day. The fun stuff, which is the beer after work or the interaction at lunch, doesn't happen. We need to still, we have to put that back into work. Yeah, and I think it's also about not having a one-size-fits-all approach for, for managing managing team members. I think more than ever, it's important to differentiate and adapt to what people need and different people have different needs. And that was easier in the past when everyone was together and it was easier to see if someone was doing well or not. That's more difficult, uh, obviously more difficult now. So I think the differentiated management approach is really, really important, which asks more from a manager compared to, to, pre, uh, to pre-pandemic potentially. So we see a lot of organizations going through management development programs to uh, to see how that can yeah can be improved so so one last point on that goes maybe going back to your point keith you know there's a lot of points on here regarding technology you know, are you seeing the ability to leverage more collaborative technology the way we're doing things now even in a more advanced way where teams are collaborating or individuals are collaborating leveraging technology, where do you see the opportunity to bridge that gap? I I mean, I think we all acknowledge there's a huge sort of divide in terms of having that physical screen versus being in the office. From the work that the teams have been doing and, and open this up to everybody, where do you see the opportunity to advance through collaboration software or more advanced sort of digital worlds, metaverse, the next generation of what work might look like? I'm just curious if if you're starting to see acceptance or the ability to leverage platforms to be able to take that next step. We get this question a lot, by the way, you know, we because this is a big deal. It, this meta idea about how it's going to impact the workplace and work is the right question. It, it, there's a slow uptake, though. I mean, we, there's investment in it, but there is, we're not seeing a lot of folks get to the idea about, 
headsets and in AV goggles and things like that. But there's experimenting going on around that. I think the platforms for it have been built in gaming. And I think that the people who are going to embrace it are going to be gamers and younger folks. And that's probably starting to happen these days. I think for the regulars, regular folks, you know, the rest of the population, I think, you know, you know, digital whiteboards, things like Miro and, and Mirror and, and those kinds of things, other kinds of interactive pieces of software that aren't just how do we share files, but are actual, you know, interactions that are live that are going on like a digital whiteboard. Those ideas are really starting to take off more. So it's moving from the physical whiteboard to the virtual whiteboard, and then eventually into AV and VR, those kinds of goggle ideas. I don't know if that helps, but the bottom line is we're not seeing a ton of that AV, VR type stuff. I see, keep saying AV, but VR, uh, augmented reality and virtual reality uh, stuff, but it's on the horizon. Well, and I think, Chris, there's another important topic to raise, you know, as we go into or we start to transition into the next topic, which speaks to diversity, equity and inclusion. You know, one of the things that inclusivity you know, is really you know, an, an important inclusive attribute and trait is how are we conducting meetings that aren't just equitable for people that are in and out of the office, but also how are we building these experiences that are equitable and inclusive for people of different learning styles, different, you know, types of neurodivergence. And I think that, you know, some of the basic etiquette rules that someone had raised, I think are really important. And we can't lose sight of, you know, some of the basic tenets of conducting a meeting and and how important that is, starting on time, ending on time. Using multimedia tools like today, we very purposefully are using a whiteboard and polling features, and we're using them with a very specific cadence to breed engagement, to keep everyone visually engaged. And, And that is part of what being inclusive means, is that we're using tools that really speak to the way people communicate uh, because it does, part of burnout is the way that we appreciate information, the way we listen, the way we learn becomes really strained when we're only using one pathway, you know, vocal voice or email. So I really encourage everyone when you're conducting meetings, even if it's a, a one-on-one check-in with your direct reports, you know, Try out some new tools um, that are built into the features that you already have, like a Zoom or a Teams, because you may find that the engagement levels increase. And then also when you're conducting meetings like this one, giving people the opportunity to participate, but do so anonymously so that that way they feel that their voice can be heard without judgment or concern around the information that they're sharing. So I always feel that that's something that we need to talk about as well, the basic tenets of inclusivity. Well, Keith, would you like me to move on to topic and poll number three? Yes, please. Well, as we pull up poll number three, this is a question that has really become, I would say, a a hot topic, certainly within the past two years, but has become a topic that has been in action and in discussion long before that. And that question is, are you adjusting your location strategy to better access diverse talent? So while we have folks, you know, this is on its face level, a, a pretty easy um, answer. It's a yes, no, or an undecided. And you know, for those that are undecided, it could be for a variety of different factors. And frankly, those who are saying no, it could be because the systems you've built today already accommodate and lean into the tools that you're engaging with. So love to uh, love to hear everyone's answers. And while folks are filling out that poll, Brett, I'm going to tap you on the shoulder ask you to, to share a little bit about one of the things that, you know, that we put together two years ago 
kind of in anticipation of a specific client need, uh, and maybe we could do so without necessarily sharing the client. But um, there was an example where, uh, you know, we were working with a client who had been investing heavily within this, this space in terms of uh, diversity as an organization, decades long investment, vocal investment around diversity, but had always felt that the ability to influence it from the real estate aspect was something that um, they were having a tough time doing. And so, you know, we started pulling up some ideas and Brett, I'll let you speak to the way we looked at this problem a little differently as folks are still populating that poll. Sure. Yeah. It really was, I think it was probably taking a lot of information that maybe HR had and bringing that through the lens of real estate and saying, you know, looking at your hiring activity around the country and where, you know, knowing the talent pools as you're thinking about your digital transformation, what those talent pools are, and knowing what your objectives are, which, you know, pushing in, leading into diversity, this group was really forward thinking with that. I think, you know, in advance of the last few years, when I think more of the markets kind of caught on and saying, well, is where you're hiring aligned with where that talent that you're both looking for in the future is, and also where those diverse talent pools are, both at the occupation level, at the industry level, uh, and even just purely from a demographic perspective. So bringing that transparency to the table and saying, hey, you're hiring some of the lesser diverse markets around the country, and also areas we don't necessarily think are growing for the specific skill sets and talent pools that you that we believe you're going to need based on our understanding of what you're you know, talking about in your public filings. Is there an opportunity to better align those, those metrics and use data? to do so. So really it was just kind of that transparency into the the facts as we understood them, which we weren't saying, hey, this is entirely reality, but here's the information we have. Is this, and then equipping real estate to take that information to leadership and say, hey, here's what we're seeing. You know, we have some real estate decisions that are coming up. We're saying this is a core value. Should we better align? You know, if it is a core value, should that be an input in our decision process? So as opposed to just looking at cost and quality of talent, um, you know, and accessibility to your existing locations, making that diversity kind of a core segment, because a big thing that we talk about a lot, Michelle, is diversity is not something you can flip the switch on. But what you can do is put it in tactically as a as a core component of that location strategy decision, uh, and that's something that we're you know it comes up you know I'd say in the last you know five years ago it came up in one of every ten conversations, and now it's nine out you know I don't know if it's nine out of ten, but eight out of ten maybe. And we just had a question come in um, from Kendra Nichols. Kendra, this is a great question. In terms of diverse talent, have we seen an increase in adjustments being made to help to help provide access for those with disabilities and? And, um, and Keith and Yanyap, I'd maybe like to pitch this question over to you because I think this really speaks to, you know, facilitating an inclusive physical workspace. So are we seeing increased demand on, on making more accessible workplace a priority? Yes, I think it's a, it's a key priority. Many companies that we work with at the moment, I think on one hand, it is looking at the right building and, and also making buildings more accessible. We also see it more and more involved and included in location strategies. So looking to where certain uh, buildings are located, how easy accessible they are. We're also looking when attracting more diverse workforce to look where certain minority groups are, uh, for example, and selecting locations that are easy to reach and makes it easier to hire more diverse workforce. So it's a it's a huge topic and yeah, increasingly increasingly more and more, more important. I'm kind of surprised by this answer that that the overwhelming number of participants are adjusting location strategy to better access diverse talent. It does give me hope, you know, as someone who's passionate about you know, bringing greater access to all career levels for diverse talent. But for those that are undecided, certainly feel free if you have questions, um, if you'd like to bring them up in the chat or 
you know, because this can be a sensitive topic at a corporate level. If any of you have questions that you would like to field or topics, we will be sharing our contact information at the end of uh, today's session. So you can feel free to reach out to any one of us directly if you'd like to do so privately. Well, appreciate appreciate the polling response here. This was great to see and, and an appreciated surprise. With that, I believe I'm going to hand it over to poll and question number four. Great. Oh, there we go. You're two seconds ahead, Brett. Always ahead of the time. So the the question here is, you know, how is your how is your talent strategy input impacting your location strategy? So the intent of this, we did some of this in our uh, in our innovation summit. I think our, our kind of our first virtual innovation summit as we were getting used to this this work from home world uh, in 2020, and we got some really interesting kind of feedback. This is something that we're talking with a lot of our clients uh, about, not just you know, as I kind of mentioned in our previous case, not just from a diversity perspective, but also from, you know, a, a skill set perspective. And then we've kind of, and the other thing I think that's interesting is seeing how this is impacting different industries in different ways. You know, we are looking at some information from the Site Selectors Guild, which is a group that I work closely with and talking about how the skills, the skill shortage uh, from the clients that they've worked with they're actually seen at the highest in the manufacturing sector, which I think is really an interesting opportunity, kind of tying a couple of these pieces together. We have seen from a lot of our clients, seeing them use diversity as an opportunity to push upskilling, right? Because if you know you're going to be upskilling that labor pool, ultimately, if you can move into an area where there's diverse talent, even if they maybe don't have the exact skill sets that you need today, but there's high alignment with, the, we call them the three C's. You got the companies who are looking for talent, You've got the communities who are trying to attract it. And then you've got the colleges who in theory are kind of filling that gap between what uh, companies are looking for and what communities have. That's kind of, I think, a more interesting lever that some clients are pulling. So we've got, and I can only see, let me slide this over here. I can't see the far right side of the screen. So I don't know if ever, maybe it's the way I have my settings. So I I don't know what, uh, it looks like no impact uh, is, Based on what I'm seeing, the the or closer to no impact is the most predominant answer. Oh, there we go. All right, now I can see the right side. So yeah, it looks like we've got kind of clusters on both ends, and then a little bit um, towards the middle. I don't know if anybody who's saying you know that this is having a high impact would anybody mind to chime in and talk about what that looks like? Kind of the way that we talk about this world frequently is we call it macro and micro. Macro meaning how is it impacting the market that you're selecting? So is it Atlanta? Is it Bangalore? Is it Chicago? And then micro being, okay, are there certain, you know, which sub-market or which, you know, location or street address do you want to have access to? Uh, As we're seeing a lot of our clients, you know, Keith and I are working with mutually saying, hey, if we want our people to come in the office, we need to get closer to our people. So they're saying, hey, we need to open a second or a third office in some of these more populous metros like New York and San Francisco and Chicago. So I don't know if anybody, I'd love for you guys to weigh in on those who are saying it's uh, having a high impact on on what that means to you and what your organization's doing about it. We tend to focus on markets where we think the demographic that we want to attract wants to be. So more of a macro approach and then go from there. We get a lot of input from our lines of business, the talent we want, um, but we hire nationally and move people to the locations where they think they want to be. So, so when you say you hire nationally and then move them to the locations you think what people want to be, is that, you know, any, would an example of that be like, you know, I call one of the, the Sunbelt, right? Some of these like growing markets, the Atlanta's, the Nashville's of the world that we're seeing general population moves to. 
right you know we might find somebody in new york that wants to live in nashville and we'll you know we'll build a hub there and move people there it's really all about where do we think you know the talent we need wants to be and then we'll use that as a focus for where we want to have space i love that so you're kind of you're basically trying to use uh you're almost using the opportunity to move to a new location as a recruiting lever right Interesting. I, I have not, uh, I, I love that approach. It's not something I've heard before, but I really, that, I think that's great. Okay. What about some on the, on the no impact side? Is that, is that because of whether, you know, strategically you already are positioned in a certain area, you know, proximity to suppliers or, uh, or kind of key organizational relationships, or is it, Hey, you know, because we're hiring virtually, you know, we don't, you know, it doesn't, nece- we don't need necessarily need to have an office in Nashville just because it's, you know, growing and a lot of millennials are moving there. Would anybody care to weigh in on that side of the spectrum? Yeah, Brian? Yeah, no, I, I think with the locate for your day, um, we're able to attract talent from wherever. So I, I think that uh, that's, that's playing less of an impact on where we, where we select our locations right now. And, uh, you know, we are committed to the communities that we have offices. So I think this only helps us attract talent. Got it. Yeah, it'll be, I mean, kind of tying a couple of these points together. I think it'll be very interesting to see what the, you know, as right now we're in the, I'll call it like the most employee fit, you know, statistically, when you look at like job openings relative to unemployment, we're in the most employee friendly environment ever. And so as that, you know, of the fangs, I mean, Google, depending on who you talk to is the only one out of that group who hasn't at least announced that there's going to be a hiring slowdown and looking at some of what's happening as the, the market is kind of shifted from this, you know, we've been in a 10 year bull market for growth slash technology firms. And now is the market's shifting back and interest rates are rising and people are saying, Hey, we actually need, you know, uh, investors are saying you need to have a company that actually makes money. So we're shifting away from growth, i.e., let me just get the best talent and pay anything for it, kind of the Netflix strategy to saying, hey, we actually need to turn a profit. So we need more affordable talent. Uh, it'll be interesting to see, I think, how that how that paradigm plays out. And then consequently, how it pair, plays out with, you know, potentially, you know, maybe some economic turbulence ahead, uh, maybe a little bit less employee favorable market. And then consequently, the opportunity for firms to say, hey, we actually maybe have got a position of strength now. So we are going to force people, you know, back into the office. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks so much, folks, for sharing these. You know, by sharing your dots on the map, we're going to give this information back to you and capture all of this data. So it'll be good to kind of track on where you are today compared to your peers. Chris? I'll let you take the the last and final poll question, number five. Great. Thanks so much, Michelle. So when you think about the continuum of questions we've looked through where we've discussed over the last 50 or so minutes, you know, one of the questions that keeps coming up is in this new world, how do you value or what are the metrics that are going to be important to show what the value of real estate facilities and workplace actually provides back to the business? So traditionally, we've looked at metrics around cost, efficiency, use, right? Occupancy as being important. But now, given the conversations around location being important, diversity, equity, and inclusion, innovation, how do we collaborate most effectively how important do you think those are going to be? And so what we've laid out is a, a, what I would call the art of the possible. I'm not sure we've seen many sort of track these kind of new metrics that we've uh, we've listed here. 
but would love to get your thoughts on the list that's uh, included to figure out, you know, how can real estate facilities show increased value by improving the business performance and not just the real estate performance. Today, more than ever, because of whether it's a hybrid strategy or even if it's in a full return to office, you really need to understand that work dynamic. So how and where people are working and really what's the value of that work, I think is becoming more and more important. So I'll give you a few seconds to, to sort of respond and maybe we can, uh, we can dive into some of these. So, you know, some of the traditional ones come to the top, space utilization, right? So right now, clearly sensing and responding is so important to understanding, you know, how are you occupying your space? I'm going to put that in a parking lot for a second and hold that and like to dive into some of the other uh, key ones that I think pop off the page. Ability to attract and retain talent. That's a, that's a, 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 key sort of metric. And when we think about that, we'd love Keith and Yanyap to weigh in on some of this as well. You know, when we think about that measure, not sure, and we'd love someone who responded to that as being important, how you're actually doing that. You know, how does the space align with your cultural goals? So someone's trying to come in and you're recruiting them, does the space align what you're saying your company's goals and mission are, as well as those employees that are working there? Does the space actually sort of reinforce the values and the mission that you're creating? Another way of measuring that is how does that, going back to the uh, Michelle's question around diversity, is how does the work experience sort of align with the desires of a diverse talent pool? Are you actually creating an equitable environment and a diverse sort of environment in the design and really even the last question location to be able to support that. And does the, does the location actually support ease of employee access so that, you know, you're really looking at where your employees are, where you're trying to attract talent. Does that fit with those, lo the, those location needs and criteria that are important to helping the business? So curious, I'll open it up to anybody with a comment or a question about this, of how you're doing it within your company, or opening up to Keith and Yanya maybe to provide some feedback on that on that topic as well, as well as Brett, you know, to dive in. Keith, you have your mic unmuted. I, I yeah, I would. I'll just jump in and just say this: ability to attract and retain talent is not really a space issue as much as it is an experience issue. How do you craft an experience for people? And an example, you know, there was a study that came out from EY last year that said 25% of women are considering leaving the workforce permanently. And so if you're able, if attracting women and the diversity that's there is your goal, then providing experiences, work experiences that are good for them will help you attract them, meaning flexibility in hours, flexibility in location. Uh, flexibility and job expectations. Those kinds of flexibility things are really important. So yes, there's a space component to it, but it's, there's also this, how do we curate the work experience of the people you're trying to attract and make it specific to those folks uh, that are on your list, even yeah. with DNI, right? So, so yeah. I think that it's, I'm just expanding it, Chris, beyond the space to more about, you know. Location as well. I mean, you could dive in the, the prior Absolutely. comment that Brett made in terms of being able to find the right locations that tap into either your existing employee base and make that easier for them to access, as well as sort of attracting that talent. Are you in the right areas to be able to do that? Add 
as Brett said, a macro level and a, and a micro level. I think that that's important. Is there anyone else who'd like to share something about how they're using this to, uh, you know, as a, as a measure for your organization to help show where the value is to the, to the overall business? I was going to say, and maybe to pile on there too, Chris, I'd love, you know, especially around like the attract and retain talent component. Would anyone mind sharing any of the metrics that they're using or how they're thinking about, because if they truly are like, you know, I, we, I think the total cost one in the space utilization, I think that, you know, those are a little bit more straightforward on what the quote unquote metrics would be that you're using to evaluate, but what rather, whether it's related to attract and retain talent or the other big one that a lot of our clients ask about, you know, the collaboration component. What are the metrics that you're using to measure any of that? Would anybody mind sharing? I can share some examples of what we see with uh, with organizations we're working with at the moment, especially linked to retain attracting talent. Um, of course, there's a lot of data on the number of people applying to jobs, for example, uh, to new job positions. That's that's one thing to look at. Another thing could be uh, the total recruitment cost. An re- example of a project that we're currently working on is more on portfolio level, but we're comparing about 80 buildings in, in an office portfolio. And for all those buildings, we look at what are uh, the cost spend on recruitment and about the number of people applying to jobs. And if we're making changes to, to an office location or to an office space, we're measuring the same again. Of course, it's impacted by a lot of different things as well. So I think the direct correlation between the two is difficult to measure. But if you do it on a larger scale and on portfolio scale, they're really interesting learning is coming from that and in some cases we see and also when we speak with people who are new in their jobs uh, why they applied for a certain job that the office and the workplace plays a role in that so i think it's difficult to define one way i think it's good to look at sort of quantitative data and uh, more hr related data and add on top of that some more qualitative data to um, to sort of further quantify it great thanks sean yap and then maybe just tying back to Brett's point as well around collaboration, you know, being able to provide the right physical and virtual space or digital space to be able to support that. I think getting that rating or getting feedback from either the space or the technology is really important and being able to observe, you know, go in and see how your employees are using the space or get their feedback on how they're using the technology in order to do that is, I think, really important to really look at that both fixed and spontaneous collaboration, because there's two aspects to that that I think are really important and curious from either Keith or Yanyap on that point, or anyone in the in the audience, whether you see, you know, you're you're using that as a measure or metric to be able to support sort of tracking this kind of this kind of measure to show value. Yeah, definitely. I think there are different levels to that as well. So one example, uh, what we're doing when uh, we measure occupancy and utilization. So through technology, we can also measure who's interacting with, with whom in office space, for example. So if we see that certain people from different teams are together in a certain area, we can sort of assume and define that they collaborate with each other. And what we've seen in a lot of projects that what we discussed earlier as well, the office becomes more a place for teams to connect, to collaborate, and especially to connect different teams to each other and to break down silos. All of that can be measured through technology, for example, by measuring the devices that people have with them in the office and see which devices are close to each other. So there are a lot of different ways of of collecting that data. But we see in most projects that we're doing, like cross-functional collaboration and connection between teams as a really really key theme. Fantastic. So Michelle, I'll turn it over to you to close us out. Excellent. Well, I think it's a great topic to to close on. I think, you know, for us, we see interactivity as and collaborations being really critical and important to the knowledge share. And so I just want to thank all of our participants today 
We had you know, great responses to all of the polling. We look forward to sharing the polling results back with you so that you can use that intelligence um, as you're making decisions uh, as you move forward. We encourage you to reach out to any member of our team and certainly to one another. You know, should you have questions or like to explore some of these topics further, this will all be available for you on the Cornet website. We thank you for your participation, your time, and your contribution today. This concludes this episode of What's Next. Want to record a podcast of your own? Have an idea or point of view you'd like to share? Visit cornetglobal.org to learn more.